evening everyone and welcome to the book launch of The Mystery of the Strange Piper by Charles E. McGarry. My name is Martin Gregg and I'm from a publishing company called Backpage Press who are the publishers of this fine book and what a thing of beauty it is too. So just a little bit of housekeeping on tonight's event. We are going to treat this like an in-person launch so um, there's going to be roughly an hour um, running time. If you would like to submit a question, then please do it on the chat on the side, and we'll try and get to it later. Um, the book was officially published yesterday, so this is a very timely meet-up in, well, Charles's flat, let's call it what it is, <laughs> and what a beautiful flat it is. Um, just to let you know that this is going to be recorded for the second season, for the second episode of the second season of the debut podcast, um, the first episode was actually broadcast last Monday, I think it was, and that was Charles's conversation with the crime writing giant Denzel Myrick. It's a really, really interesting episode. I'd encourage you to to seek that one out. The first series of the debut podcast is a brilliant six-part documentary which followed Charlie's journey to the publication of the first Leo Moran book in 2017, which was The Ghost of Helen Addison. That series was actually produced by my Backpage colleague, Neil White, who is currently in the eighth day of a 10-day isolation period. So, Whitey, if you're watching, get well soon, mate, and we'll hopefully see you next week. The question on your lips is how can I buy this beautiful book? So I'm going to answer that question right now. In the description box underneath this stream, there is a link to the Backpage Press website and the book page on the website. And you have the option to buy through PayPal. Um, There's also a button where you can buy uh, using your credit or debit card. So if you buy it through this means, and I'm strongly encourage you to do that then Charlie will even sign the book well indeed no extra charge only if he's in a good mood which is we, we certainly can't bank on that but we would encourage you to do that nonetheless <laughs> anyway I think that's probably enough housekeeping um, Charles E. McGarry welcome to your own book launch thank you Martin in your own flat thank you why don't you give us a few introductory words to the event and tell us a little bit about the mystery of the strange yes, paper. Yes, this is uh, this is really unusual sitting here with you um, because originally, of course, we were going to have a um, a proper event. You know, we're going to be with physical people and flesh and bones, and you know things were looking a bit better in terms of uh, the pandemic, and we're going we booked the hall and everything else, but. Uh, there was a, a rise in case numbers and a, a few people I knew uh, became infected so we just decided to do this and it's kind of unusual but uh, I hope you all uh, enjoy it and thanks so much for tuning in um, so I'm going to just say a few words just introducing you to the book is that okay Martin? yeah go for it and then it, I'm going to do a I'm going to do a reading um, and We'll, we'll, we'll plough on after that. Now, forgive me, I'm going to read this kind of off the page, but after that, I promise I'm going to try and be a bit more spontaneous. So, um, tonight I want to speak to you about my crime novel, The Mystery of the Strange Piper, which was published by Backpage Press. That's him and Whitey. Yesterday, the third in a series starring psychic detective Leo Moran. Now, Leo experiences visions which pertain to a particular case. Leo is summoned to a Scottish island called Sauna 
by an old university associate by the name of Marcus Troughton, who he hasn't seen in years. Sonnet is a fictionalised version of Butte in the Firth of Clyde. The McGarry uh, clan, including most of my extended family, speak about Butte with great affection because we enjoy countless childhood holidays there and, in fact, two of my cousins loved it so much that they've recently moved there. So various family members have jokingly asked me if I would ever set one of my novels on Butte, to which I replied, I would, only half-jokingly, because the germ of the idea was there. So, back to the novel itself, Marcus Troughton owns and edits a failing monthly magazine which reports on island life. In order to rejuvenate sales, he wants Leo to stay with him for a while in his crumbling mansion and do some investigative reporting into a curse which is believed to affect the south end of the island. There have been a number of tragedies there over the last two decades or so, but Leo is initially sceptical as to whether any of the deaths are actually mysterious or dubious. The fatality he's to concentrate on first is that of a teenager called Andy Lamb, who fell from a height one night in the summer of 1989 when he was performing a dare. Beforehand, he and his friends had drank and smoked drugs at a henge where they performed a ritual to summon a demon piper who is said to inhabit the hill which dominates the area. Leo speaks with some of the protagonists from that time who are now in middle age, including a guy called Vincent Comiskey, who has recently moved to Sauna. Now, some people believe to this day that he, Vincent, and not some strange curse, caused Andy Lamb's death. Now, I like the idea of folk in middle age musing upon their younger selves and the time of their youth the shames and regrets and nostalgia, and also how the same characters interact today, perhaps with curiosity or friendliness or awkwardness or undying infatuation or even undying hatred. Marcus Troughton is unconnected to the events of 1989, yet he too is haunted by his past, which will come to explain his wayward behaviour towards Leo. A key theme of the book is redemption, and various characters come to terms with their pasts or reform their past ways to atone for their past failures. During Leo's stay on the island, he feels that he's been targeted by an unknown party who don't want him there. Then another death occurs, this time undoubtedly foul play, and suddenly the stakes are ramped up. Leo's friends from the first two books, Stephanie and Fordyce, make appearances again and help them with the case. Stephanie is skilled at dealing with people, at reading them and interviewing them, while Fordyce has a cast of mind vital for unlocking codes and symbols and cryptographic, cryptographic clues. Stephanie also provides the foil to Leo's anachronistic ways. The book, as all the books have, has an ornate language, descriptive prose. I try to create a rich atmosphere. I try to build tension. I try to make the book scary and creepy in places. And I like mixing the crime genre with legend and occult to create a dark gothic feel. There's also an old-fashioned golden age 
and at times even borderline cosy style to the book. So, I would sum it up as it's Scottish Gothic, Gothic meets English Golden Age. The book is funny in places to alleviate the darkness. One uh, consideration that the writer has to think of when he's writing is that you don't let the drama slump, you don't let things flatten out. You have to maintain the action, you have to maintain the tension. Now this is especially important in the initial parts of the book because obviously you're introducing so many things, um, you have lots of expositions, backstory, character uh, introductions, establishing the setting, so on and so forth. So to alleviate this, you start the book with a bang and you and I, in this book, intercept, inserted a couple of dramatic uh, passages into the early stages. And I'd like to read one of them to you now. So this takes place, as I say, early in the book. Leo has just interviewed a guy called Norris Meeklejohn in Comichael, which is the capital of Sona. And now he's heading to the south end of the island where the curse uh, affects. And... Here we go. Leo bid Norris goodbye and drove the short distance to Dougal Street where he bought a savoury cheese sandwich and a pork pie from a long-established bakery and two bars of fries orange cream from a sweet shop. These he stored in his knapsack. He would require sustenance during his epic next task of exploring the South End. He intended on arriving via a scenic route because of a photograph he had seen in a guidebook of the splendid view from above Scallop Bay on the west of the island, down towards the three highest peaks of the south end, Cathay Arcadden, Tor Moor and Hangman's Hill. He drove westward, past hedgerows of briar, hawthorn, fern, thistle and flowering fuchsia, and hung a left well before reaching St Madden's, and was soon held up by a shepherdess on a quad bike who was herding a flock of sheep along the road towards a fresh pasture. Leo stopped the Humber and switched off the engine. He relaxed in his seat contentedly, glad that the dreaded interview with Norris was over and had gone smoothly. He popped a segment of orange cream into his mouth and observed the pleasant scenery, the gently rolling countryside, then inch Madden, Erin and Kintyre over the shimmering sea. He considered how an island is a singular entity, its own kingdom within its sea-lapped confines, with its particular history and politics and class divides and tragedies and rivalries. A country in miniature, with its uniquely varied topography. Its capital city merely a small town, every parish like a county, every farm like a parish. Its highlands loom as large in the circumscribed imagination as the Cairngorms, its fresh waters as mightily as Loch Lomond. Leo watched a charming border collie obey the shepherdess's commands with precision, finally scuttling towards her and leaping onto the back of the quad. He was only vaguely aware of the powerful green car which had followed him from Kilmichael, its engine idling in a menacing low growl. The sheep had been neatly corralled into their new pasture and Leo returned the friendly wave from the shepherdess as he passed her. The road climbed and then ploughed past farmsteads and rugged fields towards Scallop Bay. Soon the green car, a coupe, was tailgating Leo, and he was annoyed with himself that he unconsciously relented to the pressure by increasing his speed. At one point the road veered leftwards, 
Yet it was at this perilous juncture that the coupe's driver decided to overtake. Leo recognised the Jaguar emblem on the vehicle's rear and then realised that a cloth had been bound to its number plate. Then, bizarrely, it slowed, causing Leo to press the brake pedal. Then it drifted into the right-hand lane, decelerating even more such that Leo was again in the lead. As they passed, Leo glanced towards the motorist, but his face was obscured by an old-fashioned leather driving helmet and goggles. Suddenly, the realisation... Suddenly, the reality of the situation dawned on him. He was being deliberately targeted by this person. When the Jaguar swung in behind, Leo realised that the front number plate had also been obscured. He decided to pull in at the next opportunity, but there was no verge here and it was not safe to do so. The road climbed further and then Scallop Bay came into view and a sign warned him of the sharp left bend ahead. Leo tried to slow down but the Jag was now almost touching the rear of the Humber and then he felt a slight jolt as his car was nudged. Come on old girl, hold the road, hold the road, he muttered as he gripped the wheel tightly. The highway broadened now and Leo cursed himself for not hugging the left. The Jaguar powered into the space and made to cut him off from following the abrupt curve and force him through the hedge ahead and, Leo suspected, over a drop. At the last moment, he noticed an open farm gate to a track to his front right and steered the Humber towards it, praying that there wasn't an oncoming vehicle, plunging the clutch but taking care not to depress the brake pedal too heavily to avoid losing control. After 60 yards of rumbling down the track, which shot off at an angle, the car came to a halt amid a cloud of dust. Leo took a long breath and looked to his left. The drop wasn't as steep or as high as he had feared, but but it might have been enough to have injured him or even ignited his petrol tank and incinerated him. Probably the Jaguar driver had obscured his plates and worn his helmet and goggles lest he be identified in the eventuality which had, in fact, unfolded. Leo's survival. He looked ahead and only now noticed the stunning view of the three highest peaks of the South End. Not exactly under the circumstances he'd had in mind. That was a brilliant reading, Charlie. Thanks very much for that. As you know, I'm a man for asking the, the questions that others are afraid to ask. So my my one query from that reading is, can you still buy Fry's orange creams? Because I can't find them anywhere. Well, that's an interesting uh, question because they, they deleted them a few years ago, I couldn't believe it. I thought they were quite popular. And then um, they had a brief comeback. I found them in Home Bargains, actually. You get a pack of three or four with a nice old-fashioned fries boy, remember fries boy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A fine confectionery. If you're watching Mr Fry, please bring them back. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, fries, orange, creams. You can still get the peppermint and the... Uh, I believe so. The other variety as well, but um, was it raspberry? I don't, I don't think you can find them anyway. May have sounded like a frivolous question, but you're a man for detail, and that's why I asked it. Um, we're going to talk about book covers next. Have you ever heard the phrase "judge a book by its cover," Charles? 
Perhaps. No, I, I don't think Perhaps. I have. I just think it just, I think it just made up there. But anyway, I want to talk about this beautiful book cover which I'm holding up close to the camera and you can also see it behind. And I think um, this kind of mirrors how it might look in a, a bookshop and you really get a jumping off the shelf at you uh, with that incredible red cover and the, the goat's head in the middle of it. But let, let's talk about the, the series overall because this is not just a publication of book three of Leo Moran. This is actually a republication of the first two novels which have also been recovered along similar themes. So tell us about why you decided that this rebranding would would be beneficial to the series and maybe talk us through the inspiration for the designs that you settled on. Well, the, the first two books, The Ghost of Helen Addison and uh, Shadow of the Black Earl, they were actually originally published by Berlin Polygon, Edinburgh publishing house, and in 2017 and 2018, respectively. And I actually quite liked the covers that they did. Um, so I'm going to, this is the, the Ghost of Helen Addison, which is, I mean, it's, it's a brilliant cover. I would describe that as almost quite Scandi Noir uh, it's reminded, always reminded me of the, the opening sequence to The Killing, that, that Scandinavian drama where there's a, a girl running through the forest and you know that, that kind of mirrors that so really powerful cover Yep, and this is the second one this is the original one of course and as I say I quite like them but the book, as I said earlier the books have got a kind of old fashioned golden age style to them and some um, Angie Crawford who is uh, quite a senior person at Waterstone she arranged some book groups uh, at different Waterstone branches and some of the feedback I got was that people were quite surprised by the contents of the book um, they, didn't, they expected a, a, something like a Scandi Noir or maybe a Tartan Noir but uh, so when when we came to have the third book published by Backpage and we obtained the, the first two books as well we thought it'd be a good idea to rebrand them now I only had the vaguest idea of what that would mean um, something pardon me, something more traditional um, maybe something a bit art deco I had an idea that maybe there could be an action scene from the book rendered in an art deco style or maybe something a wee bit more whimsical than that in an art deco style almost a kind of uh, gentler maybe com comedic uh, rendering of something from the book or some of the characters from the book so this would be about uh, best part of a year ago and you know obviously with a, a book launch there's so many ducks you have to have in a row chronologically uh, and I was, I was kind of getting up against it you know I was really struggling for inspiration spoke to a couple of designers but it didn't really work out and then I noticed um, some of the results of a design competition um, on one of these online uh, kind of what would you describe them at these places that designers and other artists go on to, to ply their wares was it 99 designs? I think it was yeah and so this competition someone had commissioned a competition for a Marjorie Allingham omnibus. Now, Marjorie Allingham is, was a, one of the Golden Age writers. She's, she's actually one of the, the better ones. Um, so they wanted to... Some publisher wanted to reproduce her... Um, some of her best stories. And 
the, the one of the people who didn't win it was a, a woman called Lydia Puccetti, who's from Brazil, and she'd basically she'd done these three covers, except this colour scheme. So she'd kind of designed three of them for this, and I came up with the idea. Thought, kind of quick and easy way to do this, change obviously change the words, and she then laid these little beautiful little illustrations. Obviously, change them to to um, items from my books. And so I got in touch with her and kind of explained the concept and agreed the concept and then agreed a price. And it was quite straightforward, actually. I mean, a bit of to and froing, but uh, what I would say is that everybody who's seen them has been really yeah. taken with them, and I'm just really pleased about that. Um, and it does fascinate me a little bit that crime, the genre of crime fiction, certainly in this country, to me, the, the couples all look very samey. Now, I don't think that that's... I think that's probably deliberate by by publishers because obviously they sell a lot. There's a, a, a big percentage of uh, fiction sales are crime and you want to let your customer know what they're getting. I understand that. But just so often it's an out-of-focus, gloomy photograph mm-hmm. and then a, a kind of shiny writing atop of it. And I just thought it'd be good to just do something a wee bit different and... I'm a bit surprised that more publishers don't do that, you know, because sometimes these crime covers can look, uh, they can look really good, but it, nothing separates them from the crowd. So I'm really pleased with them. Yeah, they, they look magnificent. Um, as I said, as a publisher, I'd like to take some credit for it, but it all goes to you, Charles, because you conceived of the idea. But you know, let's let's give credit to to Angie Crawford and, and her book group up in uh, Waterstones, Perth. I think it was. And yeah. if memory serves me right. I think they gave you a bit of a hard time, actually. Oh, that was Dundee. <laughs> no. oh, was that Dundee? Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, it's just that I, I, I love nightmares. <laughs> it's funny being predominantly having published sports books over the years you have a fairly generic approach to the cover you know you just tend to it's usually hinged around a leading athlete or a team and you just look for an iconic image of of um either the athlete or the team and and, and dress it up nicely and that's it but it's just it seems quite obvious that the purpose of a cover is to 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 sell the content within and you know, I didn't have any complaints about your initial covers. I yeah, thought they looked really I good. Liked them, right? And then it was it was quite a revelation, almost in a way, wasn't yes. it? it was to, to get that feedback so strongly, it was really, really insightful, actually. Yeah, and the thing is, it was only when it's, it's so obvious, isn't it? But it never really occurred to me. Mm. Um, I mean, they're a little bit different the the original two. You know, they're a bit kind of haunted looking, and can uh, I mean they're good designs, no doubt about yeah, it. But uh, I think that the, the new ones definitely reflect... Look, you can't judge a book by a cover to answer your original question in terms of its quality, but you should be able to judge its genre, uh, its style, put it that way, from its cover. That's what I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know? mm-hmm. So we're going to move on to talk a little bit about writing a, about a place you love and the, and the idea of, of the setting of the book. Just before that, we've got some feedback from Aileen O'Keefe who answers the big question of the night. Raspberry's fry, Raspberry Fries Cream is out on limited edition. I know you've Thanks, been Aileen. to find it. That's Thanks. my sister, Aileen. Thanks She's for the uh, really big on her retro sweets. Yeah. So okay. I trust her information. <laughs> Let's talk about writing about a place you love. The Isle of Sauna is a thinly veiled Isle of Butte. 
uh, which is obviously a place that's very dear to your heart. Um, you and the family used to holiday there every year. Tell us just a little bit about your relationship with the island, because it's a place you've been going to for, for your whole life, really. Yes. Uh, virtually all my childhood holidays were spent in a place called Colcatan Bay, which is in the south of the Isle of Butte. The, the book is almost a, the Isle of Sauna in the book is almost a facsimile of Butte. There are some slight changes, um, but to all intents and purposes, it is Butte, really. Um, it was my dad and my uncle John, God rest them, bought a room and kitchen holiday flat, probably in the early 70s, and it was great. We'd split the, the summer holidays between us and we just absolutely loved it. The flat was... They didn't. They decided not to do it up and it, it remained like a, a kind of living museum, this flat, and it was it was like stepping back in time. Uh, the, it had... <laughs> some things were better than others. The, the, the open fire was wonderful, but the lack of running hot water and the lavatory on the stair landing wasn't so... Uh, neat um, but whenever well we often discuss it you know and uh, with great affection um, throughout my extended family we discuss that flat and we discuss um, the beauty of the place and the freedom that we had and the, the ability to roam and uh, and also we discuss the people who were there the other holiday makers the locals some legendary characters um, and it's like it's quite nice actually because a lot of people have including myself has kind of rediscovered it as an adult uh, a lot of people have their their holidays now they take their own kids down and, um, it was uh, what I would say is that this book is obviously set somewhere that I know intimately and love whereas the first two books um there weren't places I was particularly familiar with, actually. Um, one, the first one was Loch On, which is really just Loch, uh, Loch Awe. A bit different from Loch Awe, actually. I messed it around a bit, but it's very heavily based on Loch Awe. The second book, uh, Shadow of the Black Arrow, is um, a fictionalised version of Cucubrishire. Pretty close match. And I like both those places, um, but I wasn't particularly familiar with them. I didn't have that intimate connection or affection for them at the time uh, this was different and I, I hope that that's shown through not least in some of the characters in the book will will eulogise the place and eulogise the, the, the youth spent there and you know so that's a direct lift from the way we eulogise it um, also there was there's some things that happened actual experiences of mine which are used in the book because obviously I've had experiences there, I hadn't had any experiences at Loch or Kukubishire so for example the, the title was The Mystery of the Strange Piper as I said earlier in the introduction the Strange Piper is a legend that this ghostly demon piper inhabits this hill that dominates the, the area and that was based on just a throwaway story or yarn that my, my late father also Charles told me that um, the, the the village that we lived in there was a hill rose quite steeply behind the houses 
and it was wooded thick at its first kind of I don't know hundred feet or so it was thickly wooded, and at night when the when dusk came it, it was a bit creepy you know, um, especially when you're a kid, and one night I was kind of gazing out and my dad told told me this yarn about a a piper a ghostly piper who had been swallowed up by the hill, and now now and again he's his spirit, his discarnate spirit would walk the hill playing the bagpipes. Now, Dad probably made it up on the cuff or he heard it about somewhere else or he was just kind of jamming the, the Pied Piper of Hamlin thing. But it just always stuck with me. And the really funny thing is that... Because I found it quite... You know, as a kid, you found it quite a dark and, uh, image. The funny thing is, I don't think... If Dad hadn't made that little throwaway story, I don't think this... Well, certainly this, if this book existed, it wouldn't have the same central device in it, which is this demon piper. Whether you believe in it, whether the characters in the book believe in it or not, and some of them do, and some of them think they've seen it. Um, so that's another experiential uh, aspect of the book. Some other things, um, there was a, in the book, there, a couple of times there's a light appears in this thickly wooded hill, at night time it's a queer looking light strange lambency to it and that was based on an actual thing that happened that not me but a few other people saw this light at night and got freaked out by it um, and there's a basking shark in the book that makes an appearance and there was a basking shark came into the bay one time um, I'm trying to think what else um, there was another there's another I'll try and tell a story quite quickly but in the summer of 89 when Andy Lamb died the, Leo finds out that he he fought had a fight with Vincent Comiskey the guy who was suspected of his murder they had a fight over a girl and this adult came along and broke it up and both boys claimed that they were winning the fight before it was broken up and that's based on a a little <laughs> daft experiences of mine because one time me and my cousin Brian were it was one evening and we were at a loose end and Brian proposed that we, just to pass the time, that we have a test of strength. So, um, being a kind of very game and red-blooded young man, I rose to his challenge of a wrestle. And, oh, you know, it was all Queensbury rules and all that. Uh, but to this day, whenever I see Brian, one of us will say that they claim that they got the better of the other. And... I think deep down though he knows it that it was me you know I think he knows that he's hard I think back um, the, the launch of the, the first book or around then you were invited to do a, a Scottish gothic evening yep. uh, at that point I don't think you realised that you'd actually written a novel on the Scottish gothic tradition but like since then obviously you're you're much more aware of what that tradition is and the you know the re- recurring motifs and uh, that are associated with this tradition. So, like, talk a little bit about the third book and how it might fit into yep. the Scottish Gothic tradition. Yes. Um, I mean, Gothic's one of these words that, that's thrown around and people... We all kind of... We've got a vague idea that what, what it means. Uh, we're familiar with the genre of, of, of Gothic literature and especially movies. Um, but I guess I didn't really have a definition of it. And... Subsequent or prior to that um, event that you were talking about, 
I try to find out a bit about it and some of the recurring themes that are of the gothic. Um, in terms of this book, well, dalliances with the supernatural, that's a, a key gothic meme, if you like. Mm. And as I explained a minute ago, there's a strange Piper legend. Whether you believe it or not, it's there. People, whether people have actually seen it or not, or seen something else that they've mistaken it for. There are these either real or imagined dalliances with the new supernatural. Um, pardon me. The setting's got a lot to do with the Gothic. Um, the the landscape of Southern Butte is volcanic and it's very evocative. Um, I've always thought that it possesses a very singular atmosphere and, and I'm not the only person, other people have spoken mm. to think that. Almost a kind of um, supernatural atmosphere and it's something I make great play of in the book, applied to sauna um, and it's a, it's a I mean it's beautiful but it can be quite bleak in places so you think of movies like or, or books or whatever or, um, I don't know, Wuthering Heights or Dracula or The Rebecca or The Hound of the Baskervilles they've often got this quite bleak kind of windswept uh, landscape and that's all for the, that's always the backdrop um, now buildings are also important in the gothic uh, you've got the original kind of creepy house very often it's a, a house with maybe a part closed off to it maybe it possesses some secret um, and that's in the in, in the in the book very often there's a glimpsed face at a window or um, the other, the, another type of building that's all, or, or landscape or uh, is a ruin very often a ruined monastery and that's in the book as well so I think that there are a lot of gothic uh, features to the book Martin yeah let's talk a little bit about the setting of of, of an island um, there's, there's so many different things you can do with that landscape you know an island can be a place to escape from the past or from justice you know a place that's physically cut off um, a place with a, a, a more defined sense of community which can be a good thing but also can be maybe a malevolent thing tell tell us you know how did the setting of the island facilitate the the, the building the construction of, of the crime novel yeah I mean it wasn't I didn't choose to set the book there because it was an island but once you you choose the, the place you realize wait this is an island it's got its own considerations so I mean one thing that springs to mind is obviously there's only certain ways of getting on and off an island in this case two ferries so if you've done a bad deed um, especially if your car identifies you like in the passage I just read there's only one way or two ways off the island unless you're got a helicopter or a plane or speedboat or something um, so there's that sense that it's harder to get away with a crime Strangers are more conspicuous in islands. Um, they're it's conspicuous in small communities, but especially in islands, it's, I think it's heightened. And that goes for bad guys, but also for Leo Moran, for a detective investigating a crime. Um, I think in... Whether this is true in real life or not, right, it's, it's true in fiction. 
is that we render small rural communities as insular, as protective of, of secrets, um, sometimes of dark secrets. And in an island, you can uh, kind of ramp that up a bit uh, because it's even more isolated because by the sea. Um, I think another thing I'd say about the island, it's and this, this is said to Leo maybe two or three times in the book, is it's a place... In fact, someone's just said this to me the other day, not talking about the book or anything, but it's a place that people go to escape quite often. Um, sometimes oddballs, frankly. Um, they maybe are escaping justice of the law. They might be escaping the past. They might just be escaping a broken heart or a bereavement or just looking for a new start somewhere. And they might want to be left alone for various different reasons. because that's something that stuck out for me yeah. um, Port Penelope <laughs> Herrick Bay Kilmichael the, they were very authentic names it's, it felt like you had given a lot of thought to these yes. names and I think that, that's really important I, mean, I, I think back to like when I first started getting into literature and you know Thomas Hardy and, and used to hear these stories about how long he would spend coming up with place names, nice place names. and it was so evocative um, must be very challenging to try and get um, a place name that will evoke what you're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, the island's name is Sauna, S-O-N-N-A, and a lot of the um, kind of islands off the west coast of Scotland, a lot of places, it's oh, well, basically the old Irish because it would be named by the original um, Gaelic settlers in the Dark Ages. So. The, I mean, Butte, I've read about it and it said that they don't, they're not really that sure where the, the, the etymology or whatever is of that island. It could be Old Norse, it could be Old Irish. So I, I went for the word of sauna, which, is, which means, I think it means um, fortunate or prosperous. Um, I quite like that. I thought it sounded like the kind of name that a Western Isle would be called. Yeah. Um, as for the place names themselves, uh, well, Kilmichael is, is basically Rothsey. It's a replica of Rothsey. You get quite a lot of um, place names in west of Scotland that begin with Kill. And I'm sorry, I forget what that denotes at the moment. Uh, I did know at one point. Um, and then there's uh, Port Penelope and Herrick Bay. That was just... I collect names, as, as in people's names. I collect, I, collect, I collect four names, but especially surnames. I if I see a surname or a forename I like, I'll, I'll write it down and keep it. And so Port Penelope is basically Port Bannatyne in Butte. I quite like the idea of, of, of that. And then Herrick Bay is Ettrick Bay. I just like the, I just like the surname Herrick. Uh, and the other place names, um, some of them I just looked up a kind of old Celtic names and just pretended they were a Celtic, like a Dark Ages Irish saint, because so many of these places are named after these Irish saints that came over, hermits and that. 
uh, and the the hill I call the Cathier, which is Gaelic word for just the hill, basically, just mm-hmm. means uh, a generic name. And don't know if I can say anything else about place names. Oh yes, one of the ways I got authentic sounding place names was very simple. I just went on a little look either in Google Maps or OS Maps, and I just looked round. Our guy was just looked around other islands, other peninsulas, and just took transposed names so that they mm. are real names. There's a, there's a farm in the book called Inkpot Farm. That's a great, yeah. And it, yeah. It, it might sound a wee bit like I've just made that up, right? But there's a little place somewhere in our guy, don't ask me where. It might just be a farm, <laughs> I don't know. But there's a place called Inkpot. Amazing. Uh, I mean, it's, it's probably like one house or a yeah. farm or something yeah. but so I just loved that you know I just went for that well let's talk a little bit about research because that's an area that you really enjoy I think is a big yeah. part of the creative process for you is is you know filling your notebooks worth of uh, all manner of, of details some of which you use some of which you don't but it's all it all goes into the process and um, I, I was very privileged to actually um come with you on a research trip to the Isle of Butte. Yes. Uh, was that a couple of summers it ago? Was, it was May two years ago. May two years ago. Um, I I, uh, I felt like I, I, get, I get sold a pup slightly, you know, because I, I thought this would be a little maybe two-hour poodle round some some <clears throat> uh, scenic views. Yep. And then, you know, six hours later... It was um, a hard... It was a hard day's uh, graft. It, it was a hard day's graft. It was very graft. hot, actually, that day. Beautiful. It was, it was, it was. But it was amazing to to, to see your attention to detail was, was remarkable. I remember, remember standing at the bottom of a cliff uh, and you were saying, if somebody fell off this cliff, do you think they would die if they hit their yeah. head off? <laughs> and I yeah. was like, Charlie, I, I don't know, man. I'm just a publisher. You need to make these sort of decisions. But um, it, it was, it, yeah, it was a real learning experience for me about how much goes into to, to, to these novels. But like, just just talk a bit about, you know, talk a bit about that day, you know, the, the six hours and the blazing sunshine, what things you were looking for and all the detail that gets poured into these books well I think the first thing to say is that I think at that point I was still considering just setting the book in Butte and in other words not fictionalising it not creating this um, version of Butte called Sauna so therefore the the research would have been critical because it had to match exactly Mm. Um, but even if that hadn't been the case I always like to um, the landscape that I describe to reflect reality. In other words, it just have an authenticity about it. And I think you only get that, or I only get that, if I describe actual um, real landscapes, real scenery. Um, so the it's only about going on research trips. You, you, you could ask, well, wait a minute, you've made this island up. Why not just uh, you know completely confect all the uh, scenery and everything else? But I just don't think writers do that. I, I think that you have to be an expert on geology and geography and everything to to really create that world so accurately the way that land flows and everything and the types of uh, vegetation you have and where it grows and everything. I just think it's better to just go and describe it when you're there, write it yeah. down, and when you go. 
it just it, so many things spin out from it that you weren't intending on checking out so the so many just plants and animals and birds it's not just what you see it's what you hear it's what you smell um, but on that occasion of course sometimes it'll actually drive plot ideas such as that occasion that I was with you and I've got you to thank for this because there's a scene of a crime which is on this little B road or actual it's an actual single track road and I needed a, a place where the perpetrator of this crime concealed himself and originally I was just going to make it behind a wall this kind of stone dike but I kind of thought it's just a bit obvious and you know it's just it's just a little bit clumsy I wanted somewhere a bit more elegant for this guy to hide and you discovered these roadside ditches which were quite deep they're about four foot deep mm. and they were dry so you could lie in them but also they were kind of enveloped by vegetation so you wouldn't have been seen um, I don't want this to go to your head Mark no, okay? there's no question of any so I can take no Cash credit for, for, for the, the cover of this, you know, or the book Absolutely title, not. but I can claim the ditches. You can claim the ditches. Thank I'll you very you much, Charles. Uh, although you do realise that, you know, I was a minute behind you, I would have seen it. <laughs> right. So, anyway, that's an example. I mean, there's another example I could think of. I went down by myself this time, Martin, <laughs> and it was, I was, I was going on one of these walks checking things out and I came across this house I'd never seen it before it was absolutely beautiful this house in kind of mid-butte on the eastern coast and a lot of people think it may actually be a house designed by one of the Adams the great Scottish architects and that that just seeing that house cons- uh, kicked off a whole scene mm. um and in fact it's a scene subsequent to the one I just read Leo thinks that the car that tried to drive him off the road goes into this house um, so he goes to investigate and I, I just love that scene and it helps as I say break up the kind of flatter moments in the, the beginning of the book and some of the research trips could get a bit uh, challenging actually uh, because I would be really going off the beaten track not just that day with you but in the north of the island doing walks that weren't really walks going mm. to, from point A to point B and there was no path and mm. uh, you know clambering up kind of muddy inclines and over high by barbed wire fences and I remember getting stuck in this salt marsh not stuck but just kind of hadn't picked my way through this thing <laughs> to ages and, and I remember there was another time that uh, I walked up from Ettrick Bay and after a while, decided to go on the coast to see what the coast was like, and it was it was it was hellish. It was just like like a jungle, and it was really rocky and everything. So eventually, I cut inland, thinking I was going to pick up this farm road again, and then I realised I'd come out. I'd gone too far, I'd gone above this farm, and so I thought I was final cut through the farm. But the dogs of the farm got wind of me. Martin I'd broken quite a sweat by now <laughs> and on, I didn't see them right but sometimes what you don't see is worse it was like the hounds of hell <laughs> so being a a physical and moral coward I turned on my heel and I had to go all the way back through all this bloody vegetation etc missed the ferry I was planning to get home 
Uh, but these are the things I do for my art. Yeah, exactly. For you know, it's incredible the sacrifices. I you don't want thanks or anything. Um, I think I mentioned at the start about buying the book. Um, just a gentle reminder that the, the, the link is in the description box just underneath this stream. If you click on that, that will take you to the Backpage Press website where you can buy via PayPal or using a debit or credit card. Um, I want to talk about character. Yeah. Um, the more eagle-eyed viewers will notice I've been channeling the spirit of Leo Moran by supping on alcohol every five minutes. He would be aghast, of course, to know that this is actually 0% lager. <laughs> Um, both 0% and yeah. the fact that I'm drinking lager he would be disgusted by I, I think that's true yeah both of those things anyway um, there's a great character called Marcus Troughton who I think you had a lot of fun writing about uh, in this novel but I, I want to talk about him in a moment but let's talk about Leo first because he's the character that people watching and listening to this will, will have met hopefully have met before Um I just wonder if you could sort of reflect on how he has evolved as a character from the first two novels. I definitely noticed a kind of tonal shift in the character. Um, dare I say it, like a a, a slightly more sober uh, Leo in the third one, maybe literally and figuratively. Um, do, do you think, look, sum it up for us, how do you think he's changed in this third novel? Well, I'm glad you picked up on that because that was deliberate, but it was meant to be subtle so you know it wasn't something I wanted to overstate mm-hmm. but I guess in the first book we're introduced to Leo so he's he's a very cultured man very genteel man he drinks far too much um, and that's obviously an issue for him um, he's as you know, he, he has these visions he's what else would I say about him he's a devout Catholic he's got a very um, um he believes in the supernatural. He believes in the other side, if you like, the other side of the veil. Um, he loves beautiful things. He loves good food and good wine. Um, so he's he's just kind of larger than life character. In the second book, the beginning of the second book, he's he's not in a good place. First of all, he's killed a man. Okay, I don't want to give away any more detail than that. Now the man he killed was despicable, and was all, and also he killed him in self-defence. But nonetheless, he's traumatised by this, as as anyone would be, a normal person would be. Um, also, he has uh, he's just lost a friend suddenly, um, he's passed away. So he's he's in a really bad place at the beginning of the second book. He's very depressed, and he's you know he's drifting into alcoholism, I suppose. For Dice, his friend invites him down to Kubrickshire and to spend the summer to kind of recuperate. But then this adventure unfolds down there. Now, down there, he falls in love. Um, don't want to give too much away about that in case people haven't read the second book. But what I will say is at the end of the second book, he kind of has a, a moment of personal resolution, if you like. So you have to kind of consider the continuity of things and... Uh, in the third book I wanted to be true to that he still he hasn't quit drink or anything but I would say and he he says to Stephanie his friend Stephanie at one point um, that he's you know that he is altered that he's doing better that he's drinking less Mm. Troughton the the times that he doesn't drink less is when he goes on a bender with Troughton Mm. and Troughton is 
the big he's kind of the the mad drinker now. I think for Leo in this book, he's I guess he's kind of maybe made some sort of peace for life with its imperfections. Um and maybe I'd I tired a little bit of examining Leo's inner world and romantic world and um uh mental issues or whatever else spiritual angst I wanted maybe in this third book for it's not that there's Leo doesn't have any sort of journey in the third book because he does he has a, a kind of cathartic experience in one way but I wanted that inner journey um to be more about other characters in the book um and Leo is more at peace now I would say um he still can be uh have his moments Trouton drives him mad uh, but I would say he's more stable in this book. Now, whether that in a third book would, would continue or not, I don't know. Uh, but it was maybe time to shine the light a, a little bit elsewhere. I'm not saying that, as I say, you know, that we don't, um, Leo doesn't have some sort of inner turmoil in the book, but ostensibly it's uh, other characters' inner turmoil that we're concerned with. Yeah, I mean, the character of Trouton is. A remarkable creation, like really outlandish um, character. Uh, it's funny that he has this um, relationship with Leo from university, and I almost felt like he was almost caught in time, like he was still living the life of like a nineteen-year-old <laughs> undergrad, you know, and all these like daft escapades and, and like debauchery and all these things that you would do at that age. But he's kind of caught in time, and he's still he's still kind of living out this life. Um, that must have been a riot coming up with that character. Uh, it was it was the most fun I've ever had writing was writing Marcus Troughton and yeah, he's a, he's a guy that hasn't grown up at all and in fact if you consider Wind in the Willows um, Toad, you know, he's kind of like the rich mm. aristocrat who hasn't grown up and just spends his money on so I kind of, I kind of name check that in the book, you know, um uh, the Wind in the Willows. Um, so Troughton, he's, he's eccentric, he's, his parents are dead, but they they owned, they had money and they owned kind of old money, they owned this lovely mansion house which Troughton lives in, but he's kind of squandered the fortune and the mansion house is crumbling and falling apart. He's, he's pompous, he's self-deluded, he runs this um, magazine, kind of monthly magazine that he thinks is this great uh, gift of culture to the island um, but it's actually rubbish and uh, he's funny he's he's got a cruel streak he's a borderline alcoholic he plays these elaborate practical jokes on Leo which I great fun setting them up actually yeah and uh, he's um, he's a trickster character he's a comic character but he's a trickster he's, he's there to persecute Leo um, but then, of course, as is often the case with people like that, um, there's a tears of a clown, and he's actually quite a tragic character. He's quite mm-hmm. a lonely man. Um, he's he like like the the people who were there in 1989. He, although he's not part of that gang or anything like that, of that experience in the book, he is also haunted by something that happened in his past, and that I won't give it away, but that comes to explain the way he behaves towards Leo but um, I had great fun writing Trouton I, just, I hope other people enjoy him I really do 
let's kind of finish up this section at least with um, a chat about process and I think that's something that if uh, there's listeners of the debut podcast tuned, tuned into this and I think they'll be interested in that because a lot of that first series was about breaking down the process of how you, you know you put together a, a crime novel and the, and the processes involved in that so um, I want you, I want you to kind of sum up how your experience of the third one was different from the first and then the second because you you had very distinct experiences for the first and the second and then you maybe tried to you know bring together your learnings of the first two into yes. how you approach this one yeah yeah well I mean in a nutshell the first book um, like the first draft of it really wrote itself it just it was very organic it had barely any notes or anything or even uh, planning to I mean I had a kind of basic structure the second book I went to the other extreme it was a more ambitious book and it was um, you know I, I guess I had I had a, a really detailed uh, spreadsheet that had all of, every single plot point and every clue and I had character biographies from 20 characters and um, this might also sound a bit daft right but I'm not sure I could have done that book another way so this third book um, I wanted it to be more of a balance tilted more towards the way the first book was Um, in other words more of an organic enjoyable experience but the trouble is if you're writing a crime book that that, that can only be true to a point because you you do need to do a lot of checking you need to be aware of a lot of things the one kind of bugbear I had during this book how can I put this was uh, what does Leo know or what does Leo suspect at any given moment and that was difficult because there's a your, your detective can't be too slow in figuring things out otherwise why why someone why would you expect someone to read a book about that it's got to move he's got to be good at detection and move the uh, the case along at a good speed but there's a supernatural explanation for at least some of these deaths some people totally reject it some people believe in it and this and Leo's kind of ambivalent about it but I didn't really want to overstate it. I wanted it more show, not tell. So that was difficult. That that was the only bit of the book that I would say I, I didn't enjoy or that gave me a bit of stress. The rest of it was just fun. And, you know, part of the reason for that was uh, that, as it, you know, we discussed a minute ago, was it was set somewhere I love, somewhere I know. It was fun writing for the reader with fresh eyes about that place it's kind of Leo's pretty much fresh to the island as well because he has he has been there before but he only it was like a, a childhood holiday in the early 70s and even then they just went to the capital town called Michael so it's all new to Leo it's not he's not, he's not the narrator of course but it's kind of from his point of view a lot of it and uh, so you're conveying to the, the reader this new place with fresh eyes that's a little bit of a challenge because it's not fresh to you it's you, you know intimately and you can't take things for granted that they don't know um, I had a hell of a lot of notes for this one I couldn't help it it just before I sat down to write it um, just there so many ideas sparking a couple of other things I would say about it um, the just briefly uh, the the um, Sorry, I've lost my thread. I'm going to say something there. Something really profound and <laughs> interesting. Um, about writing the book. About writing the book. Uh, look at my notes. 
see about dead air, Martin. It's a crime. We have got some very juicy questions teed up, so if you want to... Uh, oh, one, so, sorry, one thing I was going to say, it was just that you learn from your past experiences, your past mistakes. Uh, you learn to trust your instincts more. You don't go down blind alleys. Uh, like, uh, because because you've got the experience of the first two books, you know? And so it's, it's easier, it's more enjoyable. Um, and what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, I... This was the one singular thing about this book was originally I, I, the perpetrator was different from who I, the perpetrator yeah, is in the book. Amazing to and that had, I mean, if you told me that a couple of years ago or three years ago before I kind of started developing mm. this, I just said that, that, that would never happen. You know, I always know it yeah. in advance. Now, I hadn't really started writing the book, but it was well into development. And what the, the, the perpetrator, the real perpetrator, they were going to have committed a a lesser crime um, but what I've done is I've actually made them um, the full perpetrator now and I think it's a lot simpler rather than kind of splitting the various crimes among various uh, culprits so that was quite a big thing yeah you know that was quite unusual for me anyway yeah and I know some writers uh, tend to uh, you know, they, they make, some writers will start, some crime writers will start, they don't even know who's the perpetrator, you know, and it's completely uh, organic, you know, just finds its own way, but I can't really imagine doing that. Was it was it a more enjoyable experience? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, the, th- the first book was very enjoyable because it was just a flow, you know, of ideas, but then because it was uh, just a first draft, I had to revisit it several times, which wasn't much fun, either editorially or adding a new layer of evidential complexity, if you like. Um, the second book was hellish because I wrote, I wrote far too many words and uh, I got massive cuts, although arguably, in, in my mind, it might be the best of the three, but it was the most difficult to write. This one, I would say overall, it was there, there was the least headaches for this one and it was great fun writing it, yeah. Let's go on to some questions. We're going to finish fairly soon. We've been recording for an hour now and we don't want to take up too much more of your Friday evening. So um, we, we're going to talk a bit about a potential fourth novel. There's been a few questions on that, but it's a good question here from Claire. She says, uh, I enjoy how you develop the female characters from first to second book, especially Elaine. Are there any strong female characters in the third book? Yes, there's... Oh, Stephanie's back in it for a bit. Although she's actually, uh, I don't want to give it away, but she's not as strong as she is in the first two books. Um, there's a character called Amy in this book who um, is, she's a, she lives on her own, she's divorced, um, she's bereaved, uh, she lives in the north of the island, she's quite an artistic person, she writes, she she paints boats, similar, similar to the female character in the first book actually um, and she's one of the she is the middle aged version of one of the teenagers from 1989 in fact she's the kind of um, femme fatale from back then uh, so she becomes I guess a kind of associate of Leo's mm. and there's a bit of a free swing between them shall we say uh, but yeah I really enjoyed writing Amy 
and it's good when women tell you that they like the f- the female characters that you develop as a man. Um, it's not it's not something that you you sit down and think oh, I'm writing a female character, therefore it's going to be much more demanding, and I have to put a lot more effort into it or anything. It's just uh, you just do your best just to create a rounded uh, person, and it's good introducing those characters. Um, so I hope people enjoy reading about Amy. Mm-hmm. Okay, just to name check a few people here. Robert McIntosh. Question for Charlie: Was the third instalment easier or harder to develop to develop than the first two? So I think you've kind of answered that yeah, question already. So. Um, and McIntosh, could I please Thanks, ask Robert. other plans for a fourth adventure for Leo, Aileen O'Keefe? Um, any thoughts on where Leo's adventures may take him next, and might this result in a fourth novel? Just hold your fire. Um, then, let me go down. Um, Eva McIntosh which book are you most proud of and we'll come back to that um, you and McIntosh do you have any potential ideas for themes of books beyond Leo Moran It's an interesting one uh, another one from you and he says with the three books being set in Scotland do you have plans for a Leo Moran book set outside of Scotland so like maybe let's take on that one about a potential fourth book but also would you possibly take Leo outside of yes. Scotland yes well I can kill two birds with one stone in that because um, I do have other ideas for Leo, just very embryonic ideas. Um, two of them, I would say, are, are, are prequels. So the books that occurred when Leo was younger, um, one of which, to answer Ewan's question, is, is set outside Scotland. In fact, it's a kind of pan-European book. And that's about when... It's, it's, named, it's, um, it's referred to in the first... This adventure is referred to in the first novel and this is how Leo made his fortune because he, he, he found the daughter of a wealthy family and was well rewarded for it financially. So um yes is the answer I, I could conceivably I could conceivably set these books anywhere. I mean the, 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 the kind of the cutting theme is that most of it's set somewhere in the Scottish countryside and he goes back to Glasgow a couple of times or maybe sets off from Glasgow. But, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be too beholden to that. I quite like the familiarity of doing that. Um, the thing about... Uh, sorry, what was the other question? Uh, so, uh, the fourth, fourth novel, potential fourth oh, novel. I, the, so, so, another prequel idea would be... Is, an, is also referred to in the first book. It's called The Monday Murders. So, Leo helped the police. Uh, a guy called Detective Carolan solve the Monday Murders. That's all it says in the first book. So... Um, I thought maybe that could be about a serial killer in the 1990s in Glasgow. Um, I've jotted down some ideas for that, but it's there's another idea I've got for a book which is set in the Scottish borders. It's not really in any specific place. It's a kind of um, just different fragments of places that are brought together. Um, but again, these are all embryonic, but you kind of know when you've got enough meat in the bone to get started on it. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, I think maybe Eva had said which which one are you most yeah, yeah. proud of? Which one are you most I mean proud that's uh, you know I I, I think um, I don't think there's a heck of a lot between the books. Um, the second one I I think maybe marginally is the better book. Uh, I just like the romantic component to it. I like the country house mystery aspect to it. Um, but it's possible that this one 
uh, is my best so far. I don't know, maybe you know, you, you learn your trade a bit more. Kind of thing. I suppose that's up to the readers to decide ultimately. Okay, I mean, I think we've been through most of the questions here. Thank you um, for the questions, guys. Interesting one about how did lockdown restrictions impact on your planning and writing of the novel. That, that, is, that is quite an interesting question, talking a little bit about process. Maybe if you could just address that briefly before we finish. Um, you you know, everyone has these huge tranches of, of free time over the past 18 yeah, months we've been yeah. sitting in. Did, did you find that, that you know, quickened the, the, the writing of the book? Well, I, you know, I kind of was coming to the end of writing it when the lockdown started so it didn't really affect it one way or the other um, so it's all the tasks that go after that the editorial process and all the things you're very familiar with Martin um, a lot of these things were done remotely um, a lot of the media such as tonight but other stuff as well is all going to be done remotely on Zoom uh, that's a big change um, it let me I think someone, it might have been you who had asked a question there about would you do fiction out with uh, Leo Moran and the answer to that is yes and lockdown's actually been more of a, a benefit to that because I've developed some ideas that are not crime fiction, not Leo Moran and they look, you know, they've got an awful lot of work to do with them but that was just purely because it was to, you know, because I suddenly, like everybody else, uh, had, had spare time so they started developing they, they kind of seem to, they tend to be either crime novels or dystopian novels that I want to write <laughs> uh, I'm not really setting out to do that but these couple of ideas was uh, dystopian one one of which highly original idea Martin of a pandemic so I don't know where I got that from <laughs> just me and about 50,000 other people <laughs> in Britain uh, sat down and uh, scoped out a book about a pandemic I think it's time we wrapped up. Um, I know really? you want, want to do a final reading. Um, sure. You've got an appointment with a cup of Horlicks and a, <laughs> a question of sport. That's your standard Friday night, isn't it? I That's, think. Yeah. Uh, that will see me off to. Bye bye. Okay. You want to do a final reading? Is that right? Yes, please. Uh, this is just a reading I've chosen because uh, I think it stands out quite well. It's later in the book. Um, Leo has left Trouton's mansion and moved to the South End, partly because Trouton's become insufferable, but also partly because he wants to be nearer to the scene of the crime. So he's rented a little holiday flat, which is not the same as the flat that I described earlier that my family had, but it's influenced by it a little bit. Uh, so I'll now read that to you. I'll just put this wee lamp on because I'm getting old. At closing time, Leo was content to return to the solitude of his flat, dashing the final hundred yards due to an onslaught of biting midges. He poured himself a generous dram and sat for a while examining the photographs he had taken of the murder scene. At one point, he went to the kitchen to fetch a glass of water, and as he glanced out of the window, he happened to notice a light a queer lambency of indeterminable colour, emitting, emitting from amid the darkened trees on the steep hillside. He immediately thought of the strange nocturnal light in the very same woods that Amy had said Andy Lamb had been unnerved by in the summer of 1989. 
Leo felt himself rapidly sober up. Duty compelled him to investigate. He sighed, he sighed heavily and muttered, Forward, Moran. Once he had pulled on his stout walking shoes and tweed jacket and armed himself with a Stanley torch, Leo left the building by the rear exit and walked up the long, shadowy garden. He looked up to see a helix of bats pouring ominously from the woods, as though spooked by whatever lurked therein. He went through a gate which opened onto the track at the foot of the scarp. He hadn't seen the light since he had stepped outside, but he clambered up through the vegetation to the approximate location of its source. It felt distinctly creepy being in the dense woodland at night, and, Le- and when Leo recalled poor Miss Green, who was found hanged from a nearby bough, it gave him a fearful chill. He raked the surroundings with his powerful torch, dreading what horror its beam may rest upon as it rendered leafage in a weird beauty of artificial greenness, exposed in savage detail every filament of moss on a branch and made fantastic crooked shapes of the trees, hags and goblins and grinning ogres. He picked his way northwards for a while, parting branches and taking care not to trip on roots and uneven ground, and then glimpsed the light again, blinking through the foliage. He realised that it had moved off the hill and into the field to the immediate north of the village. Its texture seemed different now, more clinical and less otherworldly, and its beam sharply defined. Leo found a way down the steep leafy slope, inadvertently riding a portion of it on his backside, the torch falling from his grasp and barrelling crazily into some herbage. He was stung by nettles when he retrieved it, and after a brief flicker it stopped working. He groped his way up the track and along the top of the gardens to where it skirted the field. He had lost sight of the light, but then it reappeared. It was seemingly hovering in the open land, above some indistinguishable physical mass. Leo stared at it for a few moments, as though hypnotised. Then there was a sudden orange-yellow flash alongside it, and an instant later the crack of a shot split the air. Leo turned on his heel, panic seizing at his heart as he uttered the words, Eternal Mother, Holy Mary, Mother of God, do not abandon me. Thoughts raced through his mind as he fled blindly. For a moment he wished he had taken up Troughton's offer of a loan of a pistol. Then he thought about Troughton and his pranks and his penchant for firearms. Could he be behind this outrage? No, surely even he would by now be too chastened to add such folly to his repertoire. Of course, presuming they hadn't been charged with murder, the suspects whom the police had interviewed would all be free by now. Perhaps one of them had fired the shot. At one point, Leo glanced over his shoulder and saw that the light had remained stationary. He calmed as he realised that the shooter wasn't pursuing him. But when he got back to the flat, he double-bolted the door and placed a fire iron next to his bed, just in case. Wonderful, thanks very much. Just for your information, if you'd like another extract of Leo Moran, then there will be one in tomorrow's Scotsman newspaper, um, which is a very evocative scene. Um, 
just maybe the final word will go to Brian McGarry who says on the comments you know I won that wrestling match <laughs> best wishes Charlie um, let him have the last word to <laughs> exactly so just from my point of view I just want to say thank you very much for joining us this evening um, once again I will point you towards the, the buy link just below the stream um, please um, go to the back page press website and buy your copy there and if Charles is in a good mood he might even sign it Charles do you want to uh, I just want to thank you Martin for uh, hosting this it's been fantastic and setting everything up and uh, to uh, Neil White of Backpage Press 2 I hope he gets well soon and I want to thank everyone for tuning in and for the brilliant questions and I hope you enjoy the book thank you very much and good night good night